Well, uh, if you're new this morning and you're just joining us for Galatians, um, you might want to uh, listen to the last month or so of teaching uh, to kind of help your mind get into the context of all that Paul has said and what he's trying to communicate and the various conclusions that he's come to. Uh, today might be a little abrupt uh, if you're not, if you haven't been with us, maybe not. Uh, it's always my prayer that the people of God are familiar with the Word of God and that I'm just saying again uh, what we already know to be true. In fact, that is the nature of a confession, by the way. Uh, homo in the Greek, it means to say again. And that's really the purpose, the, the job of the pastor is to take the text and say it again. Uh, to the people of God, and then we would live it out day by day. Amen. All right, so real quick in review, uh, I don't want to say much about it, but last week we looked at this allegory of Paul's and, uh, and then his, his conclusion. And his conclusion was from the allegory that the law and every bit of it, the old covenant, is to be cast out of the life of the believer. Uh, he said that Hagar and Ishmael uh, represent, uh, well, Hagar represents Mount Sinai and the law, the covenant that was given there, and she gives birth to bondage. The old covenant gives birth to bondage. And Sarah, of course, represents the new covenant that was ratified in Christ's blood at Calvary. And the new covenant gives birth to what? To freedom. And so old covenant bondage, new covenant freedom and we are to be a free people. And so Paul says, what does the scripture say? In the, allegory, in the allegory it says, to cast out the bondwoman and her son. And so we are to cast out the law, its regulations to remove them from us and abide in the new covenant. Chapter five is a follow-up of all of those conclusions uh, from the allegory and from other things that Paul has already said. You might even notice a little bit of repetition. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. The text is on the screen. And I'm also glad that Paul is coming to the end of his rebuke and warnings and all that. And then we'll get to talk about walking in the spirit. It'll be a nice change of pace. So Paul says, in conclusion of his allegory, he says, stand fast Therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we're coming to this place in Paul's uh, letter to the Galatians. And I'm thankful, Lord, that he's concluding the way that he is that you have called us to a life of faith that manifests itself in love. But as we come to these final conclusions, Lord, I, I do pray that if anybody has been coming the last few months 
and they have been entertaining things from the law because they feel like they might be more pleasing to you if they do. I pray that Paul's letter by the Holy Spirit would release their conscience and Lord, they would be free. They would realize the bondage they're in and they would come out and um, experience your grace fresh once again, Lord. So Lord, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. This uh, rather small section of scripture has lots in it. Uh, It actually contains two commands, two warnings, two negative consequences, and two great possibilities. Okay, so we're going to talk about those. So return with me to verse 1, and we'll look at the two commands. We briefly visited this last week. Verse 1, Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So two commands, stand fast in liberty. Why do we have to be told to remain free? I mean, who really says back to bondage? I want my chains back. I want my burdens back. I want to be enslaved. But it happens. People get, as the, uh, the Galatians were, as we know, they were duped. They were bewitched. They were under a spell. Somebody with uh, persuasive words, convincing arguments had come to them and um, got them caught up in that. And then he says, and do not be entangled again. So the first commandment, stand fast in liberty. We know that through the gospel, Jesus, he secured our freedom with his blood, with his blood. In fact, the, the word used by Peter and Jesus is the Greek word lutron, and it means to redeem, but the word specifically means to purchase a slave out of freedom. We've been redeemed through the blood of Christ, as Peter says, not with perishable things like with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. His blood was the currency, the lutron, that bought us. And in doing that, he delivered us from the power of sin, and then from whatever form of religion that we were held captive to that we were in bondage to. Okay. So our very lives, our freedom, were blood-bought at Calvary. And now being joined to Christ through faith, this freedom is ours to live. It's not just available to us, it's a responsibility that we have to walk in freedom, to live in freedom. Included in all of this, because we belong to him and we're in this covenant relationship with him, uh, We do not belong to, and we're not subject to, as Paul has been saying over and over, he's been beating the Galatians with it. We're not in the old covenant. It's religious rules. We're free from that religious system. And neither uh, are we subject to any other uh, religious principles or philosophies that are outside of the, the new covenant itself. This freedom was obtained through Christ As we've said, it's not simply granted to us. This is an obligation. Christ, in the text there, he commands us to remain free, to stand fast in it, to be firm, to be stubborn about it. So this is a a godly time that you get to be stubborn and bullheaded. How many like that? My mom knows that's right up my alley. (laughs) We must stand fast. The second command, do not be entangled again, with a yoke of bondage, uh, 
he says, do not be entangled. It, it, it means, uh, it's, it's the same as being caught in a trap, caught in to be entangled, to be ensnared. And of course, we know that the Galatians were ensnared. They were caught in this trap of legalism where they found themselves, interest in uh, word picture, in a, a yoke of bondage to the law. The yoke with, that the, uh, the oxen would be, it was, like a, it was like being in shackles, wasn't it? Or like in the stocks. And then they were chained or roped to this farmer who would drive them forward and do their bidding. That's the image that Paul gives of those who um, yield themselves to law keeping. They become like an ox in a yoke. And the taskmaster of the law is behind them just driving them. And they can do no other. Not a, a pretty sight. It's legalism. It's a trap. And you know, the history of the Galatians is that Christ had originally delivered them out of the bondage of pagan religion, and then they were free, and then the Judaizers came to town with this this perverted gospel that they sold them in a beautiful package, and they found themselves drawn back into bondage again, but at this time it was to the Jewish laws, and Paul says, you've been set free, now I need you to remain free. Don't go from one form of bondage, which was pagan, to another form of bondage, which is Jewish. You don't belong in any kind of bondage. You're free. Okay. Do not go back. Christ has set us free, and we have no right to entertain anything that does not keep us in liberty. If you do, you will be ensnared. Now, when people don't understand the covenants... Uh, and that's why we went through all of, not all of the covenants. I'm, I'm intending to go through all of the covenants of the Bible later. I didn't do them in our little parentheses there because I didn't want to distract us from what our purpose was. So we'll go through the Edenic covenant, the Noahic covenant, and so forth. The Abrahamic covenant, the, the, the land promises, throne promises, and things like that. Um, but when we talk about the first and second covenant, the, the covenant at Sinai, the covenant at Calvary, when people don't understand the covenants that the first has been fulfilled and that it's been replaced by the new, the second, they get confused. They don't understand they should avoid the law and they often begin to entertain things from the old covenant. Confusion uh, allows you to do things that you, you never would if, if you understood. And what they do is, is if you've ever listened to people that have come out of legalism, uh, you say, tell me your story. How did you go from liberty to bondage? And there's oftentimes a similar uh, story that comes with it. Uh, you guys know Gabe Anzalini. He's not here this morning. He has a headache. Okay. And by the way, I needed to mention, you know, oftentimes I give Gabe a hard time up here. And my mom said, you're so mean to Gabe. And, and his, his wife, Janessa, says, yeah, but you don't hear what Gabe says to him. It's not really an excuse to return evil for evil, but he, he deserves every bit of it. <laughs> the, the reasoning goes like this. If, if we should keep the moral principles in the law, why not the Sabbath? It's listed right there with them in the Ten Commandments. Why would we leave out one and only keep nine? And so they start keeping the Sabbath. And, and that now, since we're keeping all of the Ten Commandments, we're so spiritual now, why not obey God all the more by keeping the dietary regulations? We've gone thus far, let's go further. 
And if we're supposed to do all of that, we should logically do all of the other things. We should do the festivals, we should, we should, and on it goes. And that would be really good logic if they didn't begin with the wrong premise, okay? It all follows, but the first step was in the wrong direction, and so they ended up in the land of bondage, okay? How many of you guys have ever done land navigation? Yeah, you got your map, you got your compass, and you, you're trying to set your azimuth and all of that stuff. And if you got 50 miles to go and you're one degree off, you will never find what you're looking for. And that's how it is when we reason this way from the law. As we set ourselves off a few degrees and we're heading out for the land of liberty and we end up in bondage. Okay, that's what happens. And uh, what we have to realize from the scriptures is the Ten Commandments uh, haven't actually been restated in the New Covenant Uh, only the morality contained in them. But morality, I think that we get confused as well. Morality does not find its, its source or its origin in the Ten Commandments. God is the source of morality. Okay, that's the source. The Ten Commandments were a legal document that were prescribed for Israel. We have no such document. You know, Jesus didn't come down from Mount Calvary with two tablets. He didn't, okay? He established the new covenant, which is based upon a whole different premise, a whole different scope and idea. But because, of, because tradition itself has really held up the Ten Commandments as a legal document for the church, people uh, have continued to stumble on the Sabbath commandment. Okay? They continue to. But Paul makes it very clear that the legal document was only for Israel. It has no place in the new covenant. It's been made obsolete. Okay. Gabe, he is a friend of mine. I'll claim him. He went down this path. He reasoned the same way from the Ten Commandments, started keeping Sabbath, and then went down that, that path. And it wasn't long before he was entangled in the law for the next five years of his life. And much of it was because of tradition's elevation of the Ten Commandments. It just seems so odd that we would keep nine and not the tenth. Well, that's why Paul and the author of Hebrews says, cast it all out, okay? We have a new basis on which we live for God. So while I think the Ten Commandments are useful to evangelize the lost, as Paul says in Galatians 3.24, they can be a stumbling block to believers. Gabe and I were talking about the the Sabbath commandment, uh, that it acts like a gateway drug. It really does for a lot of people. And it opens the door to the rest of the law, which leads people into more and more bondage. And you should stay away from it. Okay, Paul says to cast it out. In the New Covenant, we don't have ten commandments. We have our own commandments, and there are similarities, but we don't have the Decalogue. We have the New Covenant, and the commands of Christ are found in it. Okay, Christ has set us free, and Paul says we should remain in our freedom. Here's what people need to understand. As Paul is saying, we cannot obey Christ, and keep the law. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. It's impossible. You cannot be free and in bondage. How many think you could pull that off? Be free and in bondage. You cannot cast out the law and hold on to it at the same time. Get it out, Paul says. We have, he says, a covenant obligation to avoid the law as a legal system. Now, I would say that if you're one of those people that loves to you know, make rules, keep rules, 
and you just love all of your checklists and everything else, I would keep this particular verse at the forefront of everything you do. I'm not a prophet, but I can see legalism in your future. Okay? Keep this text in front of you. So remain free and avoid any yoke of bondage. Hear the law. And then let's look at Paul's warning to those who want to continue in the law. Verse 2 and 3, he says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Now, the warnings in Galatians, as these two are, they're meant to, to alarm us. They're meant to startle us. I'd say because of some of Paul's language, as he will even continue on in the chapter, it's meant to scare us. We should be scared of the law. Okay? We should be concerned about it being anywhere in the mix of our faith. So Paul says that Christ will profit you nothing, verse 2, and he says you will be a debtor to keep the whole law. So one of the requirements of the law was circumcision. Circumcision. And like every command in the law, circumcision could not be avoided. It was required. But circumcision itself was the physical sign of the old covenant. And what, it, what, it, what you did when you got circumcised is you were communicating that you belonged to the covenant from Sinai and that you were agreeing to being accountable to everything that was brought down the mountain with Moses. And that's a lot of stuff. And with that, any failure to be circumcised was considered a breach in the covenant and could result in death. That's just the way the law worked. And so Paul addresses two problems with being circumcised according to the law. Of course, we would say that as opposed to being circumcised in our culture for, I don't even know why we circumcise babies anymore. Um, But anyway, if you're circumcised according to the law, Christ would then profit you nothing. How much would he profit you? nothing. And then he says you'd have to obey the whole law perfectly. Now Paul has said that already in Galatians 3.10 where he was quoting Deuteronomy 27.26. So the question is why would Christ profit you nothing if you got circumcised according to the law? Because if you got circumcised in obedience to the law you'd be making yourself a constituent of the old covenant. You would be literally abandoning the new and adopting the old. And because the grace of Christ is only distributed through the new covenant, his grace would then be no benefit to you. Christ will not extend his grace to anyone who is entertaining the law. He won't do it. Also, the reason believers start keeping the law in in their minds is to be pleasing to God. But the reality is you will never be able to please God on your own terms. We don't get to make it up. Uh, That's a form of idolatry, by the way. When we decide for ourselves how it is that God should be worshipped, how it is that he should be served. So any attempt to keep the law, regardless of the motive, will be a work of the flesh rather than living by faith. And anything that's not of faith, the scripture says, it's rejected. It's rejected. And Paul has already told us that the law, Galatians 3.12, is not of faith. So you can't keep the law in faith. So it's a waste of your time. It's a work of the flesh. So rather than trusting Christ, the lawkeeper trusts themselves. No matter how much they say or believe, they're trusting the Lord. And wherever trust in Christ is substituted for self-effort, Christ ceases to be any benefit to the person. His grace 
is suspended. The second warning, Paul, he warns that if you get circumcised in obedience to the law, you'll be accountable to the whole law. It really does. It, in a figurative sense, it places you at the foot of Mount Sinai, okay? agreeing with the rest of Israel to obey everything written in the law. You remember, after Moses received the law, he came down, he stood before the people at Sinai, and he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they responded, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. Exodus 24, 4, and 7. Notice the emphasis on all. All. There's no keeping, you know, some of the covenant. When it comes to the old covenant, there's no, there's no such thing as partial obedience. It, it's, it's either all obeyed or it's all disobeyed. And circumcision makes you responsible for everything. Everything. And the warning, of course, is connected, as Paul said earlier in Galatians 3.10, quoting Deuteronomy 27, he says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Again, the emphasis is on the word all. It's all. Okay? Because you must keep the law perfectly or you will be cursed. Now, consider the mess that you'll be in if you get uh, circumcised according to the law or if you depend upon the law to please God. Paul says the law will curse you and Christ will be no benefit to you. That's the mess that you get yourself in. Either way, it's a lose-lose, isn't it? You lose. We have to remember that God's purpose for the law wasn't to make people righteous. We talked about that in Galatians 3. God's intent, his purpose for the law was to make you experience your own unrighteousness and thus making you desperate for Christ and his righteousness. Through legalism, we assign a purpose to the law that God never intended. It's becoming creative with God's word, and that's a scary thing. Now, even though the Galatians have not yet been circumcised, they're already suffering, uh, Paul says, two negative consequences because of how far they've already gone with the law. Verse 4, he says, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. So two negative consequences of keeping the law for righteousness, estrangement from Christ and fallen from grace. So these Judaizers, or not these Judaizers, but the Galatians, because of the Judaizers, were trying, as Paul has already said, they were trying to be justified by obeying the law, that is, by obeying the law, they were trying to become righteous enough to be acceptable to God, to be well-pleasing to him. Now, that's a good motive, right? Wanting to be pleasing to God, but you can certainly go about it the wrong way. Now, let me, I have to say something about the language here. Uh, I'm looking out here in my audience of everybody I know who might be doing this or have done this, but... It's, it's because, you know, some of you have been well-trained, that's a compliment, in the doctrine of justification for salvation. You have a bad habit of reading that doctrine into every passage that uses the word justified, even when the context doesn't allow it. I've done it myself. But that interpretation of the word only works in isolation 
from the rest of the context. We, we must resist the urge and allow the text to speak for itself within the context. Amen? Every text has its own context. Paul is not referring to our justification for salvation, which is that, you know, that wonderful event that took place when we first trusted in Christ, where the Father declared us righteous in his sight because Jesus' righteousness was transferred to us. That particular act of God is an accomplished fact for every believer. It occurred in the past, and it was completed in full the moment it started. Okay, all of Christ's righteousness, not some of it, but all of his righteousness, all of his virtue, his innocence, was transferred to us. It was, Paul uses the word imputed to the repentant believer the moment we trusted in him. That occurred in the past, and it has nothing to do with what Paul's addressing here. Paul is talking about what should be happening in the believer's life after that moment. What happens to us from the moment of our salvation to the day of our death. Here the word justified is not being stated as an event in the past. Even the grammar doesn't say that. Here it's in the present tense. It's not in the past tense. The past tense is in Romans 5. Paul says, therefore, having been justified. That's the doctrine of justification. It's a past completed work of God the Father on account of the Son. Okay. In this passage, it's talking about an ongoing process, ongoing process where we become more and more righteous. But in the life of the Galatians, Paul is saying this was all stunted. It was arrested. It all came to an end because they were trying to accomplish it by the law. Paul says that because you're trying to obey the law as a means of becoming righteous, you have been, you've been estranged from Christ. Listen to that. By taking up the things of the law, you are estranging yourself from Jesus. No matter how the law makes you feel, you're estranging yourself. It means to be severed from him. And, and in this instance, being severed means being cut off from the very source of righteousness that you're seeking. You want righteousness. You want to be pleasing to God. But the one way that you can be made righteous, you've pushed it aside. Okay? A Greek scholar, Kenneth Wiest, says, The word is applied to any destruction of growth or life, physical or spiritual. It speaks of the loss of some essential element of life by the severance of previous intimate relations. The idea is that the Galatian Christians, by putting themselves under law, have put themselves in a place where they have ceased to be in that relation to Christ, where they could derive the spiritual benefits from him, which would enable them to live a life pleasing to him. So to be estranged from Christ then is to be cut off from his benefits, his supply for righteousness is choked out. You know, the whole concept is, is the relationship that Jesus talks about in John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches. And we must abide in him as the branch. And the branch that abides in him gets to feed off of the vine. Amen. And through that, then the branch bears fruit. But if you're estranged, there's no life source coming through. None. So as soon as we substitute faith, for works of the law, it's like putting a kink in a hose that was feeding a garden. All development up to that point will be arrested. Okay, arrested. Christ profits us nothing when we commit ourselves to the law. That's the first consequence they were suffering. The second consequence, spiritually, 
was he says they had fallen from grace. Now, I've heard a lot of people, you know, in this context of being estranged, of fallen from grace, they say, well, that's salvation. They've lost their salvation. Um, I, I don't agree with that because, first, he's not talking about the doctrine of justification, which secures our salvation. He's talking about our sanctification. Okay, so uh, rather than uh, being estranged from salvation, we're, we're estranged from this resource, this the, the life-giving relationship that would grow us into the likeness of Christ. So I don't think it's a salvation issue, or Paul would have just come out and said it. Don't you think Paul could do that? Because in a minute, he's going to say that I wish the Judaizers would just castrate themselves. So I think that he can speak plainly to believers. And if he's talking about salvation, I, and he's been so blunt thus far, I think he would just come out and say it. But grace here is not in the text, in the context of of regeneration and salvation, justification, but in sanctification. And to fall from grace, it it really means to lose your grip of grace. And when you lose your grip on grace, you're then deprived of grace, the very thing that you need to be living according to God's word. Law-keeping deprives the believer of Christ's sanctifying grace. And I love the discussion of grace, and that's going to be... coming in the next couple of weeks, is the need for grace, how to walk in grace, what it looks like to live by grace. We've been talking about the deprivation of grace. Grace is the only means. Guys, it's the only means by which the believer can be pleasing to God, no matter how obedient you are to the law. But even though the Galatians were currently estranged from Christ and they'd lost their grip on grace, they could be restored to a walk of faith, to where they would once again benefit from Christ. The kink in the hose, as it were, could be released. Verse 5 and 6, Paul says, For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So two great possibilities. The hope of righteousness, verse 5, and faith working through love. Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. How many of you guys have a hope for righteousness? How many of you have a hope for more righteousness? Because we know you're so righteous already. (laughs) You want more righteousness. You want complete righteousness. By the way, what is complete righteousness? Jesus is complete righteousness. Okay, And we long to be in his image So real quick, the hope of righteousness in verse 5 is is another reason that Paul cannot be talking about the doctrine of justification. You see, because the believer is not hoping to be declared righteous by God. Look, if you haven't been declared righteous by God, you're not saved. You're not regenerate. You're not born again. You're completely outside of his grace. The believer is not hoping to be declared. That, That has already occurred at our conversion. The believer, the true believer, is now eagerly waiting to become righteous as he relies upon the Holy Spirit by faith. That's not justification, that's sanctification. Okay? It's not a, Paul's not talking about a past completed reality. You can't hope for something that's in the past, right? I mean, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but you hope for things that are yet to come, right? Not for something that's already done. Paul says we hope for something that we don't have, not something we do have. All right. So it's not a, a past-completed reality. This is an ongoing process in our daily experience 
as we rely upon the Holy Spirit. Sanctification really is that peculiar work of the Holy Spirit to where he is day by day by grace through faith conforming us into the image of Christ. In, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, you know, Paul says, from glory to glory, we're being conformed to the same image, he says, by the Holy Spirit. Okay? That is his peculiar work. And when he is conforming us according to Christ, that's when we are being brought more and more into what is true holiness and what is true righteousness. See, that sadly was the experience of the Galatians before the Judaizers arrived. Paul say, I think in verse 7, you ran well, things started well, and somebody tripped you in the race. You remember earlier, Paul rebuked them saying, are you so foolish? That's uh, Galatians 3, but verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Having begun your walk with Christ in the power of the spirit, receiving all of his benefits, enjoying all of his grace, walking in freedom. And he says, and suddenly now you're going to be made perfect by walking in the flesh, by keeping the law. You started out trusting, and the Judaizers came, and then you stopped trusting. And you started trusting in your own ability to keep the law, which Paul says is a work of the flesh. Yeah. Casting the grace aside and keeping law. But Paul says at this point, even though you've gone this far, he says all you have to do is is cast the law away from yourself and be restored in your trust of the Spirit. And then once again, the grace will flow to your account. The other great possibility before them, if they were to cast the law aside, would be the, the manifestation of their faith through love, which really is the element of righteousness they lacked whether they were circumcised or not. Okay. You know, now that the old covenant has been set aside for the new, God could care less about circumcision. From God's perspective, it's as good as a, as a, as a pagan ritual. It's just nothing to him. Okay. It means nothing to him. It's done. What really matters to God is that our faith in him is manifesting itself in the greatest of all virtues, which is love. Love for God and love for our neighbors. And I'll tell you, if you can get those two right, you're a studly Christian, okay? Because we can sure pick and choose our neighbors, right? What could be more righteous than loving God and loving our neighbor? You know, when that, that, that biblical scholar came to Jesus and he said, hey, you know, you got it all together. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you can do that, you got it going on. That's a paraphrase. But that's it. And really, that's it. That's the simplicity of the new covenant. It's faith that manifests itself in love and love. If you grow in faith, you will grow in love. And as you grow in love, you will be conformed to the image of Christ. I I read John's epistles once, and I, I remember him saying that God is love. And so if you're going to be conformed into his image... So that's what you're going to get, is love. Pretty basic stuff. Okay, so Paul is pretty much done. We have some, um, some finishing thoughts that he has for the church, uh, and then he's going to move into verse 16, uh, a text that you know, we're all familiar with. I say then, walk in the Spirit, 
and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's what they're trying to do, is not fulfill the lust of the flesh. They're trying to walk in a way that's pleasing to God, albeit the wrong way. They're doing it in the law, thinking the law will strengthen them to be more spiritual, to be more righteous. But Paul says, I say to you, the Spirit. So I'm excited to get there. We'll finish with the closing thoughts next week, and then after that, we'll be full-on walking in the Spirit. Amen? Okay, so read the rest of uh, this section before verse 16. We'll talk about it. Um, and uh, don't, um, don't be too alarmed by Paul's language. He, uh, he was pretty mad. So go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. I'm excited to get into the, the theology of grace, the practice of it. Are you guys doing a closing song? Well, don't worry about it then. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, my, my prayer is that like the Galatians, if, if some people have gotten into the law, it's not too late. Paul says that we, we, we have the hope of righteousness by faith. And so I, I pray, Lord, that they would, they would drop their baggage of the law, whatever they're entertaining, and that they would once again look to you for your grace and that you would strengthen them to walk in faith. And Lord, that day by day, that your life would be manifest in theirs, manifested in love for you and for other people. And though they wouldn't be distracted again, entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So Lord, set them free. And, uh, and for the rest of us, help us to stand fast in the liberty that you have purchased for us. So Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.